0: I went three
1: Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face to face. And uh, who are you? <laughs> This is Dylan and Kelsey, brother and sister, eight and 27. No, six. And how old? Eight (laughs) Eight and 11. Eight and 11. They're from some of our favorite uh, and best fans, Arthur and Christopher, from that family. And uh, they're here with us tonight. And so we are really. Is there anything you want to say to your friends out in TV land? Hi. Anything? very profound. You guys, uh, you just knocked my socks off. Well, great to start off a show with such good looking kids. Thanks, you guys. All right. Whether you're watching Heart of the Matter on the NRB Direct TV network, channel 378, or listening on AM820, uh, the truth, we welcome you. Heart of the Matter is available uh, anywhere in the world, by going to www.hotm.tv and clicking on uh, Streaming Video. Well, uh, we've been talking about it for quite a while now, and uh, we premiered our ministry's first uh, short film last night, entitled Girl, and um, 208 people attended. uh, And here's a sampling of what some of them had to say.
2: Watching this film, it really uh, really shows us some topics that the Christian Church is afraid to deal with at times to put these things on the table and I appreciate the film that it does put those topics that are
3: more difficult to deal with on the table. A lot of young women and girls don't even know that, you know, um, I'm, I need love or I, I, want, um, I want to feel beautiful or um, some of the things that were said in the film. And and that comes through the dialogue, you know, in in the office, you know, after quite a while. And so I think this film is good because it it really brings the issues up um, to help um, young girls and women be able to start thinking about this before um, they get caught in situations, you know, like this. The
1: film didn't seem overtly religious to me. In other words, um, it seemed to me, uh, I wouldn't describe it as a Christian film. And uh, you know based on my conversations with uh, you know my colleagues and Professor Hanley included you know that's a good thing uh, especially when one's
3: goal is to reach a broader audience.
2: I really believe as a pastor I'm watching this and all the way through it I'm thinking how can I reach this person a person like this that is struggling with those types of things how do we reach that type of person and I think uh, the Christian community would see this and have that in mind. Um, as a non-religious person, I can tell you that um, you know one of the ways, one of the quickest ways to turn off a, uh, a non-religious um, audience is to make the film seem overtly concerned with be- becoming something that affects propaganda. Uh, but I thought you did a very really fine job of avoiding that and of um, of. Uh, of explaining some of the challenges that young women and, and young men in their own way face. I think the, the Christian community will embrace it um, if, if they're honest in where people are at. I think the non-Christians will see this as maybe there is hope because maybe I'm
3: dealing with some of the same issues in the film. Um, but it's, it's very, very good to start to get the dialogue o- out there and open up the issues. I think it's very helpful. Um, well, it definitely talks about things that Christians are really uncomfortable about and even offended about, even though it's real and it's happening and they don't really want to think about it. Yeah, like it addresses some of the questions that secretly we wouldn't like say out loud uh-huh. with it. About it. I didn't get the feeling that it really was a Christian film and I liked that about it because okay. I think more more young people will watch it if that's the case. Um, I think it, it was also nice because a lot of the Christian movies tend to have that like cheesiness you know, mm-hmm. about it and I didn't get that at all. With this. I figure this is real life and this is happening every day and whether Christian or not, girls mm-hmm. need to hear about it and it's kind of refreshing to hear from a, someone who is Christian, this perspective and to kind of take our time to realize that girls are experiencing this. It made me think about how it's just a struggle for every teenager for normal things, how we always expect to be perfect and how we have to be pretty and how we always want to be wanted by some guy but when we do, we don't know how to handle those emotions at the time. It's just fun. Well, if I was still a teenager, it would make me think about decisions I'm making and the boys I'm interested in and, and just the things that I would do with my free time as a teenager, probably. A lot of, a lot of what the actress was saying is probably really spot on as to how girls feel, but I don't know that they're able to language that, so I think that will help them to be able to do that. I think we as parents need to be open and not think sex is a weird or freaky thing to talk about and we need to be sharing this kind of stuff with our girls. It's kind of given me backup to what I believe in, like what I've believed before. Like mm-hmm. it's made my opinion stronger and what I've always been taught and what I've always believed in as a Christian girl, this has made my standpoint even stronger. Artistic. Realistic, impacting,
1: eye-opening, wonderful. So, girl is going to be submitted to a number of uh, film festivals around the uh, U.S. And then, uh, girl is the first part of a three-part series uh, coming up. uh, Hopefully, by summer of 2012, boy will be next. Uh, Look forward to that. And then. Uh, Our hope is to get uh, this series out to as many uh, uh, churches and things as possible in the future. So go to HOTM.TV for more information about this vital part of our ministry. Here on my desk, I'm hosting several items from our Heart for Israel uh, product line. If you're interested in either seeing more of them or making a purchase, go to HOTM.TV and just click on Heart for Israel logo. Uh, these are all olive wood handcrafted, uh, items, uh, gorgeous olive wood products are a win-win for our ministry. It's good for you because we offer them at a price that is not available anywhere else. Uh, it's good for Israel because it supports, uh, their economy and it's good for Aletheia ministries because heart for Israel, uh, donates a percentage of each sale back from, uh, to us to help with our costs. Uh, Heart for Israel genuine olive wood products available at www.hotm.tv. Uh, by, by the way, free shipping for the first 20 orders that come in uh, starting now. So <laughs> hurry up. Uh, are we going to see those? Oh, uh, spot. Let's take a look at the Heart for Israel spot and we'll be right back. Here we have a few more products just for your viewing pleasure for that Christmas tree there. <laughs> and uh, look at those beautiful ornaments. You know, I'm so bad at doing this. Just look at them and see what you think. Brass bells, wood products, Christmas tree. <laughs> I have a future in pushing products, I'm telling you. Uh, If you'd like your product pushed here at Heart of the Matter. (laughs) Okay, every Sunday afternoon, God willing, Heart of the Matter uh, episodes are replayed on the radio. We're at AM 820, The Truth, and uh, from 1 to 2 o'clock, and then uh, every Sunday, again, God willing, uh, we hold a never-denominational, open-to-everybody Bible study at the University of Utah from 2 to 30 to 3 30 p.m. Go to www.calvarycampus.com for more information like directions. You know, we get a lot of complaints about my attacking Mormonism. Um, To question or even attack another person's religion or faith is not the same thing as questioning their value as a human being or their right to believe as they do. There is a big difference between an ad hominem attack, an attack on a person, and attacking something that that person believes or represents. And I support anyone's right to believe anything they want, have at it. However, if they make certain claims, I also Uh, have the right to challenge those claims. For instance, if the Yamahumish faith uh, claims to have the power to walk on water and they claim that they got that power from Jesus Christ and they've been walking on water since Jesus Christ came, don't I have the right, when they're looking at the Yamahuish faith, to say, do they really walk on water? Do not I have the right to investigate that, to film that, to look at their history of that, to explore that completely? And then what would the Yamahuish people fear if they really are walking on water? There should be no fear at all if I'm questioning that. Mormonism uses a, a phrase, it's called anti-Mormon. And for anyone who calls their doctrines or practices or their histories into question, anti-Mormon is a thought-killing cliche. And what that means is when someone uses it, Sean McCraney's an anti-Mormon, automatically it just kills all conversation and it kills all thought centered on uh, the things I have to say. I am no more anti-Mormon, meaning anti-Mormon people, than I am anti-alcoholic or anti-meth or anti-fascist regime person. If I meet an alcoholic, I love them the same as if I meet a teetotaler. If I meet a communist, I love their person just as much as I love a capitalist, uh, sometimes even more. And if I meet a racist, uh, I love the racist uh, as much as I love a non-racist. However, however, I am going to explore and challenge and debate every racist ideology and every racist pra- practice and every belief which comes my way. I will fight against racism. I will call racism stupid I, or insipid, and I will demand accountability for racism, but it does not mean I am a, a hate or against a racist. Do you see the difference? Uh, can't I love the alcoholic but at the same time detest uh, uh alcoholic c- corporations uh, uh, uh corporate uh, corporations that make alcohol and, and and prey upon people uh can't i love a fascist but simultaneously hate a fascist re- regime that's the whole point so um uh, and if why on earth would we ever just roll along with a uh religion because it calls itself a religion if that religion does harm based on what I have experienced having been in it for 40 years. Now, many people will say at this point in the conversation, uh, but Mormonism does so much good, Sean. Uh, why do you need to attack it? When Reverend Jim Jones uh, relocated to the Bay Area in Northern California after leaving what I think was Indiana, they were renowned. I mean the People's Temple, Jim Jones headed, they were renowned in that area for their good works. Uh, Their outward works for the poor and especially for people of color uh, caused some of California's most powerful government officials uh, to dismiss attackers of Jim Jones and the People's Temple as being intolerant and hateful bigots jones who was a political charmer he used the cover of this facade of good works uh as a means to grow and prosper the people's temple and then that led to a point where everybody from the governor to the mayor of san francisco to even jimmy carter's wife himself president jimmy carter's wife to defend jim jones because they did such good works and uh all it did was allow him to just continue to let this thing grow and fester and, until uh, he moved away to Guyana, of course. Don't allow yourself to mis- mistake investigating and exposing institutional evil, especially religious institutional evil, with personal attacks. They are not one and the same. Uh, our efforts are to try to get people to not get drink the Kool-Aid that has been put into their hands. We're just trying to get you to say, stop drinking the Kool-Aid. Don't drink it. Even though maybe the uh, the group you are involved in does things that seem so good, don't drink the Kool-Aid any longer. And with that little diatribe, let's have a word of prayer. God in heaven, I need you. We all need you desperately, and we want truth, and we want to be better people. And uh, so we seek that tonight. As we continue to explore the topic of Mormonism relative to biblical Christianity, and we do this in your name, we pray for our volunteers, our viewers here, or wherever they may be, in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we talked about ancient Israel's singular temple site on Mount Moriah and how it was so very different from uh, the temples Joseph Smith introduced to the world. We also discussed Freemasonry last week and how Joseph uh, not only became a Freemason in Nauvoo about a month before introducing his temple ritual to the church, but that he incorporated literally hundreds of Freemasonry tactics into the LDS temple experience. And he called all those uh, rituals from God. Uh, Tonight, we're going to look at LDS Temples and how they sort of took form, and then we're gonna actually talk about what people do in those temples. Now, it's not gonna be uh, exhaustive, but it's gonna be enough so you'll understand what they're about. Understand two things about Joseph Smith. First of all, he was a fantastic synthesizer of information. I mean, the guy could walk into a room and read a couple things on the wall and incorporate it into his synthesized religion. Secondly, the guy thought big huge. And it was this morphing, rolling, moving along conglomeration of all these different ideas that were constantly changing as they came into his mind. And so he had this ability to think big and see a big picture and then to just grasp all these different things like a great chef and bring them all into his his Kool-Aid mix. So... Uh, And I hate to make this comparison, but like Adolf Hitler, who had the same thing, Joseph Smith started with a small book. and, And with that book, he started off small and it grew as people bought into it. And he also had this tendency to outdo everybody in the things that he did. Where God wrote on tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, Joseph Smith's. Uh, uh, God provided him with golden plates, you know, um, where Noah built an ark out of gopher wood. Uh, Joseph Smith actually had uh, a guy named the brother of Jared create arcs out of animal skin that went under the water. There were submarines. They were submarines in the Book of Mormon. So he always was outdoing the things that have already been set up in the Bible and he would introduce these snowball ideas and he'd roll them down the 19th century gullibility and they would roll and just get bigger and bigger and bigger as they went, at least for a time. Well, his imagination was the same when it came to temples, all right? He was grasping and pulling stuff, he formed a small snowball, he threw it down the hill of gullibility and it started rolling and man, that thing just took off into an exorbitant uh, uh, machine. We all know that he borrowed from Masonic rites and from the ancient uh, Israel temple concepts. Um, Mormon temple ideas started way, way back before he even started uh, bringing those in. Around 1832, two years after the LDS church was formed, Joseph formed one of these snowballs, and he called it the School of Prophets. And It was a gathering of men, and that gathering in those School of Prophets, they were supposed to be, quote, a place of instruction, like the temples are today, a place for men to purify themselves, just like temples are today, and a place where holiness was stress. Same thing with the temples. And in it, the students were challenged by God himself. According to Joseph Smith, too, quote, "...sanctify themselves, yea, purify their hearts, and cleanse your hands and your feet before me." He wrote, God said, "...that I may make you clean through this school of prophets' experience." And students were warned, like members of the temple uh, who go into the temple today are warned, that they're, they need to keep their mind clear of carnal thoughts, of light-mindedness, and their lustful desires. So this was this idea of the School of Prophets, this little snowball that started off. And um, their whole purpose was to perfect man, to take our being and to get us better and better and better. And that was the idea behind masonry, too and these elements uh... all begin to work into joseph's idea of a temple now these were internal ideas of what would happen inside the temple outside the temple joseph smith also incorporated masonic themes what he did was he started to form cities around the masonic uh... idea too and so uh... LDS author and uh... defender richard bushman notes in his city notes in his book that Joseph Smith said, quote, excuse me, he notes in his book regarding Joseph Smith, quote, city planning was common for utopian and religious visionaries. In many respects, Bushman says, the Zion format with its square blocks and central squares resembled plans designed by many town founders in these years, end quote. So many early American towns were based off this Masonic model temple in the center and then these squared off streets, all at these right angles emanating off that central temple. Now, I remember when I was a kid that I was taught that uh, Brigham Young was certainly a man of God due to the fact that he came out to Salt Lake City And he laid this city out in such a marvelous way that it's so easy to find everything. Everything is based off this temple and how the streets were wide enough for horses to turn around within them. This was all stuff that I was told. No one ever told me that this was standard fare for cities that were built prior to that, all the way going back east. They always built it off a central hub, often around the Masonic temple. The streets radiated off that, the streets were wide. And in fact, no one ever told me that it was Joseph Smith who actually laid out the plan for this very city that we're doing the show from, and not Brigham Young prior to his death. Very few people know that. It was Joseph Smith's idea on how how it happened. Well, from there, what happened? The Mormons moved to Kirtland, Ohio, And at that time, a group of them also went to a place called Jackson County, Missouri. Kirtland, Ohio, Jackson County, Missouri. And both of them were called by God to build temples. Jackson County, Missouri Temple was supposed to be a place where all the saints were going to return. And Joseph said it was going to be Zion. It was going to be the new Jerusalem. Just like the old Jerusalem, this was the new one here in the Americas. Okay, Uh, Jackson County, Missouri. And anyway, plans were drawn up for these temples and um, uh, the town center for each of these cities, just like Salt Lake. The temple was the centerpiece and conflict led to the Mormons being kicked out of Jackson County, Missouri. A temple was never built there, although Joseph said in revelation from God that it was supposed to be. But the Kirtland Temple was built and it was a glorious place, full steam ahead. And the first ritual they did in there was called a washing and anointing. And that was in 1836. And the washing and anointing that was done in that temple was nothing like the washing and anointings that they do in temples today. In fact, what they did was they they got to the point where they had tubs that would hold a lot of people. And a lot of men would get into one tub, and they literally, was just to wash them from the, the grime and dirt of the city, or a lot of women would get in a tub and would wash them all. And that was more the washing and anointing and how it started, snowball rolling, okay, continues to go. And then the temples at that time, they also did foot washings. And uh, now today, uh, supposedly only the apostles do this uh, ceremony of ritual of washing feet. They also took a bread and wine sacrament in the temples to start off with. And then what Mormonism calls the endowment didn't even exist at that time. It was just more praying for uh, divine revelation at the time. All right. Morph, morph, morph. Then the Kirtland Temple, it still stands today. And it was unique because it was architecturally uh, designed to be at different priesthood levels. And uh, as Joseph saw it, and this all related to masonry, all right? And then Kirtland fell apart because of the church's involvement in something called the Kirtland Safety Society. It was a bank where all the money failed. And so then the whole leadership moved its headquarters to a place called Far West Missouri. And plans were made there for construction of a temple, but it never took place. And so then they moved to uh, Nauvoo, Illinois, and they were commanded there by God to build a temple. And uh, now uh, as time had passed between all this, Joseph Smith's mind and the snowball rolling, He had gathered a lot of other stuff, and the temple in Nauvoo was going to be a completely different animal. And um, you've got to try and picture this. Joseph in Nauvoo was free to have his dream community, and he was free to let his imagination run wild because he had tremendous freedoms granted to him by the state of Illinois to run a municipality as though it was almost a separate state unto itself. And so hand in hand with the secret practices of polygamy, he began to reconstruct temples and their purposes. And it was in Nauvoo that temples began to serve as ordinance houses for living people and for dead people. This was the first time. Kirtland and all the other places, no, no, no. But Nauvoo, it was the, it was the place. Joseph had a store. And on the second floor of that store was a, in this brick red store. Uh, they, Joseph was able to create his first temple. And he, he, he decorated the room with white carpet and white hanging curtains and murals all over the place. And this was the first attempt at, at a temple. Does this sound Christian to you? Anyway, and Joseph, basking in the warmth of his unrestrained imagination, concocted this heavenly utopia in his head, and it was fueled by the power and prestige of politics. Joseph ran to be president of the United States at this time. Joseph was the mayor of Nauvoo, almost a a country of itself. Uh, He had the luxury of knowing some money for the first time in his life. And he had the verve of knowing many, many women who were sealed to him with husbands and not. And so upon this foundation, upon this history, the snowball had grown. And he now had finally in his mind what the temple was going to do. The Nauvoo Temple operated only for a very short time, months if memory serves, before the saints then came west to Salt Lake City and that Nauvoo Temple was later decimated by mobs. Well, out west, Brigham Young uh, like the Freemasons before him, and as instructed by Joseph, he constructed this city based on the Masonic Temple uh, uh, model. And all the temples here were larger than Nauvoo, and he completed four temples, first St. George, then Logan, Utah, then Manti, and finally Salt Lake City. And then temple building stopped till around 1910, when Joseph F. Smith announced one more, one in Hawaii, and then one in Canada. And as if poised for some future use, Mormon temples continue today to be strategically placed all around the world for these workings for the dead. Uh, I'm not going to read some of the quotes because we've done it before about how important temples are, Uh, but I want to take you through what actually happens in there very quickly. There are several ordinances or rituals that Mormons do in the temples. First, know this. The first time you go through the temple, all the ordinances that are done, all the rituals are for yourself, your life when you die after you have done that, those ordinances, then every time you return to the temple throughout the course of your life, you are going through in the name of somebody who is dead. That's why they do so much genealogy. And you go through and you do those rites and rituals again reminding yourself of the principles that you took on and also doing the, the work for someone who died so that they in the spirit world can get notice that their ordinance work is done and they can, they can decide to receive that ordinance work or not. Now, uh, once I personally received all that stuff, then I begin as a Latter-day Saint to go through with my wife and do these ordinances for people who are dead. Now the first time a person goes through, let me tell you what happens. You go into the temple, you show them your recommend, and then you go to a place where you rent clothes. And you, you, you rent white clothing, socks, belt, pants, shirt, tie, all white, and you also get a packet of clothes that you're gonna put on through the rituals that you do. After you do that, you go and you put on this sheet, and the sheet is like a giant towel, beach towel, made out of uh, the fabric that you make bed sheets out of, with a hole cut out of the center of it, and you put that hole right over your head, so you have a plank covering the back and the front, and it goes to about your knees. And you walk into a room, and there they do initiatory work, and in that initiatory work, they bless your body in different parts with water and then with oil, and in that blessing sequence, they pronounce you clean from all the sins you have committed. So it's not your faith in Christ. It's not Christ shed blood that does it. It's this ritual that you do that pronounces you clean. Then they seal all that on you by laying on hands and they say some words. And then that washing and anointing was done. You go back and you put your clothes on, pants, shirt, tie, a belt, uh, little slippers, all white, and you go with this packet to the thing called the endowment. Now, the endowment mostly replicates what they did in the Masonic temples. And what Joseph did is he took you from receiving one little lesson uh, of the Aaronic priesthood, and then you receive another lesson of the Aaronic priesthood. And you'll notice I'm doing this because you're moving up in knowledge and light. So you move the one lesson, then you do another lesson, and then you do another lesson, and then you do another one, four of them, basically. Two for Aaronic priesthood, two for Melchizedek priesthood each of those little lessons that you do, all the men are sitting on one side of the room, all the women on the other side, come secret handshakes, secret passwords, and penalties that you will have done to you if you reveal the secrets to anybody outside the temple. So this is what happens. So you go and you learn the secret handshake, the secret password, and the secret uh, penalty for each of the four things you learn. It takes about an hour and a half. And then you're taken to this big white sheet that they call the veil. And there's about 50 of them lined up inside the temple. And inside those, those big white sheets is a place for a hand to come out. On the other side of that veil, you're all dressed up in this garb that you've put, been putting on through all the rituals. And a hand comes out. And that hand is supposed to represent God. And that hand says, hey, what are you doing here? And and someone helping says, hey, this guy's here to show you he knows all the secret." Uh, handshakes and all the, knows all the secret passwords so that when he's done you will let him into heaven or the celestial kingdom so the hand says okay let's try it out so the hand comes through and here you are and you do all the handshakes and you do all the and you do all the stuff and everybody's exchanging all the different stuff and you say and then sorry I'm sorry and then after you've shown that you know all the secret codes and all the handshakes And I'm not telling what they are just so you don't get too nervous because that's what you promised not to show. Uh, Then the guy on the other side of the veil says, he has passed. Come on in. And he he pulls that uh, cloth aside. And you walk into this place called the celestial room. And everybody in the celestial rooms all dressed in this garb, all Masonic garb, same garb that they wear in the Mason, Masonic temple. And everyone's weeping that you made it into the celestial room, you know? And then it's like this is supposed to be heaven on earth. You go back, you change your clothes, and then it's done. That's what they do in the temple. That's the endowment. The final thing you get to do if you have been anointed and washed, if you have done the endowment, is you get to be married to somebody who has also gone through all these processes. And they seal you over an altar. You go into a room. This is the final thing that Mormons do. And they get sealed to the person they're marrying. Once they have personally been sealed to a person, they go back and they do sealings for dead people who can choose to have, be sealed to their spouse from eons ago. And when you get there, everybody's sitting there watching your marriage, your sealing. And you do all the handshakes to show you know them all. And then the officiator seals you. And he says, and this is going to last forever and ever. And does this little mirror trick. And then you've, you're sealed for time and all eternity. This is the stuff Joseph Smith brought in and said, you have to have it to go to God. Okay? Never anywhere in the Bible does Jesus allude to, mention, suggest that any of this is needed? All he says is, believe on me, man. Just come and believe on the work I did on the cross for you. And you will be with my father after this life. Why do we fight this stuff? Because there are people who spend their entire life. Do you, do you realize all those ordinances I just mentioned to you? If you did all those in a day, it would take you about four hours. And every Mormon who's supposed to be temple worthy and they get temple worthy by being under these great burdens of obedience and paying tithing and all this. And they go in there and they do the work for their dead because Joseph Smith said the greatest work you can do as a Latter-day Saint is the work for your dead. I can barely get out of bed sometimes and make my bed and make breakfast and they want me to save all my dead relatives. You know, they put that burden on you and all the burden and, and this is what we're talking about. It's not what Jesus brought. And this is one of the most diabolical things that he brought to the earth when he burdened everybody to go on to those uh, ordinances and rituals. All right, we're going to open up the telephone lines, 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. Call us if you're LDS. We'd love to hear from you. Call us if you're a first-time caller. We would love to hear from you, and um, we will go from there. We have some callers waiting on the line right now. Um, but let me talk about our partners. We'll be to Ray in just a second, first time caller in Provo. We are drawing to the end of the year. I wanna take a minute and tell you what we're looking forward to in 2011. Uh, First of all, we are preparing to take all these programs we've done in 2010, the alphabetical and uh, editing them just for content only. Just have the messages in there, and we're gonna put them on a 50-volume DVD set called Mormonism A to Z. Uh, This is gonna take some time and support. Next, we're publishing our uh, ministry's second book. It's called, If My Kingdom Were of This World, Then Would My Servants Fight. Uh, And we're gonna introduce you to that book next week. Third, we are duplicating girl to go out to all interested church youth pastors, and Cassidy's preparing a shooting script for boy that is gonna be out in summer of 2011. And finally, we'll continue to produce Heart of the Matter programs, which we hope will continue to reach millions. Uh, Praise God. We're also waiting for TBN. All of this takes support. It takes your prayers. It takes your time. It takes you telling people about the program. And if possible, and if God is so inclines, again, no arm twisting. Hate it. Your financial contributions. Aletheia Ministries is a 501c3 tax-exempt corporation. Any contributions you make are tax-deductible, and only if the Lord places it on your on your heart, consider Alathia Ministry uh, as you uh, uh, pray for us and tell people about it. We appreciate all of our partners, fans, and friends. Okay, and while we wait for operators to clear your calls, uh, last week we had a guy call in and ask if I was familiar with Isaiah 29. He wanted... A, commentary right then on the phone about all these passages in Isaiah 29. And I told him I wasn't prepared to give it, but I would cover it this week. So let me address it really quickly now. If you open up your Bibles and read uh, chapter 29 of Isaiah, you wouldn't believe what the context is. The subject of the chapter and the four chapters that follow are Israel's invasion of Cherib. sorry, Cherib. And uh, it talks about the great distress this invasion uh, put upon them. And it talks about their sudden and unexpected deliverance from God. And it talks about uh, their prosperous state under King Hezekiah. And it's interspersed, that chapter and the four that follow it, with reproofs and threats by God for their hypocrisy as a people, for their stupidity as a people, for their infidelity as a people, and for their lack of trust in God, and for their reliance on uh, help from Egypt. That's the context of what chapter 29 is about. If you open and you look at the very first verse, it says, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Who is Ariel? It's Jerusalem, and that is the subject at hand. All of the chapter is talking about Jerusalem. Verse two and three go on to speak of her failings and sorrows and how God is coming to bring her down. And then in verse four, the passages, uh, a passage comes up that the LDS take, and this is it, it's up on your screen. And verse four says, "'And who, Ariel,' which is Jerusalem, And thou, Ariel, shall be brought down and shalt speak out of the ground and and thy speech shall be low out of the dust and thy voice shall be as one that has a familiar spirit out of the ground and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. Okay, the LDS say that that passage is talking about the Book of Mormon. They say that that passage is talking about the Book of Mormon coming up out of the ground buried golden plates as a voice coming out of the dust. And that caller was trying to say, what do you say about that verse? And several others in that passage, Sean. Um, What do the LDS mean? They, like I said, they think it's of the Book of Mormon. And this is just the biggest piece of garbage analysis there was. When they say, when it says in there that God is going to bring her low it says, and thou Ariel shall be brought down and thou shalt speak out of the ground. He's talking about Israel being brought down so low because of their wicked, ugly ways that they are going to be brought down to the dust and that uh, their speech shall be low out of the dust and their voice shall be one as it has a familiar spirit, it says. And you know what that means? There were Women, especially gifted at the ventriloquism, really, and they did this really high shrieking sound, and they could actually cast their voice and make it sound like ghouls coming up from the earth. And God says, I'm going to bring you so low, Ariel, you're going to be so low in the dust that you're going you're to be crying for me out of the dust, out of the ground. It's, you're going to be a voice like one that has a familiar spirit. That's an evil reference that's a reference that God is saying, you're going to be so low out of the... You're going to sound like those voices you guys are doing with all your witchcraft and bring these ah, voices out of the ground, that familiar spirit. And the LDS take that single passage and they try to make it uh, reference. They teach their people that that is talking about the Book of Mormon coming out of the ground and that it has a familiar spirit to the Bible. I mean, that's the kind of... Uh, academics that you're dealing with when it comes uh, to their doctrine. So I wanted to cover that. I'm not going to cover the rest of the chapter. That right there uh, should show you they're, uh, they're not on track. All right, let's go to Lloyd in Provo. Lloyd is LDS. He is a uh, first-time caller. Lloyd, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, how's it going? Good, how are you?
2: Good.
1: I'm waiting to talk to Sean. Yeah, this is Sean. You're on the air, Lloyd. Hey, how are you doing? I'm well. Hey, uh, I was going to ask you that uh, you're a Christian, right? Yeah. And so are you,
2: um, you're obviously, you were LDS. So now, um, do you believe in a, in a trinity now as uh, being a single being?
1: Do I believe that, I believe in one God, yes. You can, you can throw the word trinity out. That's just a man-made word. But I do believe in one God, and I do believe God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I believe all three are God.
2: So in the, in the Bible, not the Book of Mormon, when God said he sent his only begotten son, um, are you negating Gethsemane and, and the crucifixion where Christ said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? He didn't mean God forgive myself.
1: Well, unfortunately, um, Lloyd, you're coming at this from an LDS perspective. And so it's going to be virtually impossible for you to break outside of those, that, those uh, confines of your mind and understand what I'm talking about. I do believe there was a Father, remember that's why I just said, the Father is God. I do believe there is a Son. I do believe the Son prayed to His Father. I do believe there is a Holy Spirit, but I believe they are one God. The example I could give you that might help illustrate it would just be fire. In the beginning, there was one fire. That fire came down in embodied flesh. That fire that it came from was still there. Same flame, same heat, same components, but two different places. And so they are one, but they are three. It's incomprehensible, but, you know, we're one and we're three. I'm body, I'm spirit, I'm soul, but yet I am one. I can't comprehend the divisions between me, but nevertheless, I am three and one. Do you understand?
2: I understand what you're saying. Could you give me those scriptures I could go read or a a scripture that at least... We did, about that a little
1: bit. We did a five part series on God this year. If you go to hotm.tv, you can watch five hours of discussion on God with a plethora of scriptures. Okay. Yeah, in my mind, I am not an, an, uh, an academic. I'm not a scholar. I can't rattle off scripture after scripture. I just research and I prepare. And so, you know, you can go. We have them right there for you to watch and see. And you take notes and you look them all up. And then if you have a question about one of those or an argument, call us back. Okay. All right, Well, thanks for your time. You're welcome. Bye bye. We're going to Dale in Murray, Utah. He's a first time caller and he's LDS. Dale, you're on Heart of the Matter.
2: Yeah, hello. Hi, Dale. Hi.
1: You need to turn your TV down, Dale.
2: Uh, Are you ready for my question? I'm ready. Who, according to your uh, belief, wrote the Book of Mormon?
1: Um, As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Joseph was an articulate, intelligent man, and he was a synthesizer. And when you look at uh, the Book of Mormon, you can see a number of places that he pulled from. First and foremost, he pulled from the Bible. He pulled from quotes from the Bible that were actually mistranslations in the King James Version and put them in the Book of Mormon as though he had translated them straight from golden plates. So we know he used the Bible as a proof text for the document called the Book of Mormon. Then we see that he actually pulled from books that were uh, made from Solomon Spaulding. We know he pulled from books called View of the Hebrews. We know he pulled from books uh, and even from newspaper uh, articles that were in the uh, uh, newspapers of his time. The Wayne Sentinel ran articles and he used phrases from that. We also know that thematically, there was a whole bunch in this new country developing. He pulled all kinds of themes and structure from those uh, times and put them into the Book of Mormon. Gadianton robbers were a huge one with it. Tyranny and fighting in the land of liberty were all very big themes that he borrowed from the, the uh, area that he lived in uh, at that time. So whether Joseph Smith penned that himself or he had the help of Oliver Cowdery and or Sidney Rigdon and or his parents who were, who were school teachers, I don't know. But I do know this. He started off and he pretended to look into a dark hat with a rock in it and say he was receiving the words for the Book of Mormon. And he would do so much and they'd finish for the day. By the time he was done, he would just stand there and tell the story. He didn't even use the rocks. He didn't use the plates. The plates were in a different part of the house. And he would sit there and tell the Book of Mormon story. So you tell me where it came from.
2: Well, it sounds to me like you attribute all these great... um prophecies in, in the Book of Mormon, by prophets, to Joseph Smith, and he could not have done it with only three years of, ed- of education in less than one year. He, he had the plates less than one year. Okay, wait so a second. You're pretty
1: stupid to okay, believe wait it. a second. He, he had it. Wait, wait a second. I'm pretty stupid? Who's stupid here? Joseph Smith came and said, hey, an angel appeared to me, and he has a book. It's called uh, the Book of Mormon, and I'm going to get it. Seven years later... Seven years later, he said, I finally got the plates. Oh, Who's stupid here, you or me? Seven uh, years he had time to work on the manuscript of the supposed golden plates. You're saying because in his account, he said he only had possession of them for a certain amount of time, that suddenly uh, he did it in that amount of time? Come on, dude, you're you are you're beguiled. He, he had this whole thing worked out and he had people working with him.
2: Uh, well, now listen, that, that's another thing. The plates were proven to exist. 11 what? witnesses saw it, so they exist. Watch right our show on the witnesses.
1: The How did what? the witnesses see the plates? You tell me right now. How did they see them? He, 11 people saw and felt them. How so. did they feel and see them? Huh? How did they feel and see them, my friend? They, let's see.
2: Huh? Eight, eight, eight got to see and feel the plates in three Got the angel to show him to anyway. Guess 11. what? Which is Guess what?
1: All of them saw That's them what? by their mind's eye. No, read Grant, Palmer, read Grant Palmer's An Insider View of Mormon Origins. He's one of your own. LDS, he researched it. Read, read David Whitmer's account of the golden plates and how he actually saw them. Again, you've been deluded and lied to. Look, do the history. Don't believe me. Believe I am the idiot that you think I am, but you do the history on the witnesses of the golden plates. Go to utlm.org and you do the history on what actually happened with them seeing and proving that these plates were there. How many of them were family members of of those witnesses that Joseph Smith supposedly gathered in? Come on, man. You, You just have seen and bought into what you've been told. You have not done the history. You're regurgitating stuff. Oh, he couldn't have done it one year's time. He, you do not know the history behind the Book of Mormon. And you're walking around acting like it's true.
2: I don't understand. I, he,
1: I know you don't understand, people, and that's OK. Uh,
2: witnessed the plates. And, you know uh, what?
1: There, it, Again, I know you believe that. Listen, Dale. I know you believe it. Well, but I know listen, I just <laughs> want to tell you, do yourself a favor. Go and research the facts. Don't believe me, Dale. Go to utlm.org and look up the witnesses. Look up the real history. Read from your own members' books about what the actual history is of the witnesses of the Book of Mormondale. You're going to do yourself a favor because you're going to be able to see the truth for maybe the first time in your life.
2: Okay, tell me again that reference to where I would go.
1: utlm.org Oh, dot .org. Go check that out. Call us back next week. Say you've researched it, you've looked at all the, the material, and that you know that those witnesses handled and saw those plates like you have been taught your whole life.
2: Uh, okay.
1: Um, all right, and, my friend. Okay,
2: the final thing, I still don't understand how you can believe it. Joseph Smith, even with help and collection of, of items, could have written such a, a, a magnificent 500-page a book of scripture that ties in with the Bible all the way.
1: Okay, let me have you do one, jo- one more Joseph thing. Joseph
2: Smith was not, had, had, it was not a, li- a liar. He, as far as I know, he never lied. He never deceived anyone.
1: I have to tell you again, Dale, if you go to UTLM, Joseph Smith lied all the time. He oh, lied to Emma do. constantly about his wives. He lied about everything he did. And I'm sorry. I know there's no reason for you to believe me but I have no vested interest in coming in and wrecking your faith, Dale, except that you can be free from it and they're taking advantage of you. So listen, go to UTLM and look up those questions, look up the material, it's all from their, it's all from your church's resources that they'll teach you about this stuff. And you can see for yourself from your own history, what was said, how these things were done. And you'll begin to see the eye, your eyes will begin to see clearly the Book of Mormon and what it is relative to the Bible?
2: All right. Okay. I'll, I'll do that. I
1: praise God. It won't
2: take me very long to see where they're they're wrong, but uh, okay. I, I'll I'll keep an open mind because I I want truth. I don't want good uh, tradition. I want truth.
1: Good. You, Dale. You check it out and you please call us back next week and tell us what you found. And it's to say this is Dale and tell us what you found. Okay. All right. Thanks so much.
2: Yeah, you bet. Goodbye. Bye. you.
1: Pray for Dale. That's awesome. We're going to Ray in Provo, Utah, first-time caller. Ray, you're on Heart of the Matter.
0: Praise be Jesus Christ. What's that? No, praise be Jesus Christ.
1: Praise be Jesus Christ, Ray. What's happening?
0: Well, a couple of items for you, Sean. Um, I guess I'm, I'm still kind of trying to understand you with your position of faith and uh, faith-only uh, I've been reading the Bible ever since I've been seeing your program, and I see a lot of places in the Bible where it says uh, what you did to the least of these and, and, and the Beatitudes, and, and what, it's what we do, Sean.
1: Okay. It, you, again, you've got to look at context. You have to remember, Ray, that Jesus came, and he, his ministry was to the children of Israel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all part of the Old Testament. They are not new testament even though we put them there now they were jesus fulfilling his mission to the jews and what was his purpose in the beatitudes it was to convict them his apostles came to him after he had taught and they'd said how can anybody make it into the kingdom of heaven the whole purpose of jesus teachings was to show those jews who were so religious and so good in their religion that they could not make it through their good works but you have to read it contextually or you'll never understand that The Old Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and everything backward was for the Jews, the covenant people. At the book of Acts forward, Paul, called by God, brings in the the gospel of the Gentiles. That is what saves us. We are not under the covenant that the Jews were. We, We don't own that. That's their deal with God. We, Jesus came and he made it possible for Gentiles by their faith and faith alone to be saved. You're going to have to read those things too. Now, once you are saved and your heart has been changed, you will work. You will love. You will change. That's my story, and I believe that. You're not perfect, but certainly your life will change. But you don't do change because to make yourself better. It just doesn't work in God's eyes. But it's got to be taken in context, uh, Ray.
0: Well, I, I've been trying to take it all in context here, Sean, and, and uh, you know, the scariest part for me is what I've done and not done. I mean, separating the sheep from the goats, and, and it's, it's a matter of what I've chosen to do, Sean. It's not just a matter of my faith.
1: But how do it's not a handle- matter of
0: lip service. It's what I've done, Sean.
1: Okay, but what's lip service? Why are you suggesting lip service here? Why would you lip suggest service? lip well, service?
0: I'll tell you why I'm a little bit incensed. Um, uh, My my sister lost her job down in Phoenix. A bunch of evangelicals kind of uh, teamed up on her. They kind of squeezed her out of this job. They kind of made it known to her that unless she kind of joined their group, that she was going to be ousted, and she lost her job. So uh, when I see the born again spirit, and I see this uh, fervent evangelical, and I see this political nature to religion, it absolutely incenses me, Sean.
1: Well, me too, Ray. I I, I would agree. I. I- I wouldn't call myself part of an evangelical group who does anything like that to anybody. I wouldn't call myself part of a Christian group that becomes politically uh, driven. I wouldn't call myself part of anybody who uses God's name to do evil, but I would call myself saved by grace through faith and faith alone and that's, that is a bottom line tenet of all Christianity. Now, you might not appreciate some people's methods, you might not like Christians, and many of the Christians according to scripture, which you're reading that Jesus said, They're going to be tears anyway. They're phonies in the Church of Christ. It's going to be an ugly scene. But what about you? Do you actually think, Ray, that your own good works and your own righteousness and your ability to follow that you're going to die and God's going to say, Okay, Ray, you actually did everything. Come on in. And you over there, well, you only trusted on my son's blood and you love people in return. You don't get to? I mean, Ray, it's not about you. It's not about... Anybody evangelicals in Arizona, it is about, do you believe Christ said he was who he was, did what he did for you? If you do, then your life will change and good works will follow. You'll be be loving. You'll be kind. You'll extend yourself. But it comes by faith first, Ray, and not works.
0: Well, let me tell you something. I believe that, yes, okay, Christ is my Savior his redeeming blood has saved me. I absolutely believe that, Sean. Okay. Let's not equivocate. I completely believe in the redeeming uh, blood of Christ. Okay. okay? What is that?
1: But I know this is going to I know you have a point to make, but I got to ask you. What does that saved mean to you?
0: It means everything. What are you talking about? It means
1: that, it means that he paid the price for me. Okay. He paid the price, and does that mean that there's anything you can contribute to get yourself to live with God again? No, I wouldn't use that
0: word. And you, but you believe this that. Is part of why, this but you believe it, Politics enters because you use certain words, just like Mormons do. It's my, it's it's
1: my ability to respond to that, Sean. It's, it's not your ability, ability to respond. To respond you, to that you can't race. respond. You can't respond. You don't have the ability to respond. And Martin Luther said, "Listen, if you think you can do it, just wait till an enemy ticks you off. You're going to show that you can't respond." You think that you're you're pleasing God because you're able to respond? You're crazy. All you can do is give up and say, "God, help me." I trust you did what you said you did. Now, so here it is. We end this way often. We're out of time. Forty-eight seconds left. Ray, I see you, too many people deny, Sean. I see too many people say, give lip service
0: and then in their actions
1: deny. Let them have the lip service. Let them go off that way. That has nothing to do with you and your faith in Christ. You have to love them regardless of lip service. It's do you have lip service? Is your heart converted to Christ? That's the thing. Do you realize he did it all for you, Ray? That's the when thing. When I see the bad examples, Sean, when I see all the bad examples, I use
0: that as a learning
1: tool. Hey, you know what? Unfortunately, the church is sucks. Church history sucks. The uh, uh, the body is filled with people that suck. You don't look to men. You look to God who didn't suck. Join us next week here on Heart of the Matter. We'll see you then.
0: break my rusty cage